everyone, and welcome back to another episode of How's the Pressure? I am your host, Haley Winter, and today we'll be starting our conversation about depression. So let me introduce our first set of panelists. The second set will be reserved for episode number two on this condition, which will be released in two weeks. But today, we start with Ruth Werner. She is an educator about massage therapy and pathology, who will help us set the foundation of understanding on a physiological level. She'll talk about what's actually happening on a tissue level with each individual who has this condition. Next, we have Whitney Lowe, our orthopedic massage expert, who has decades of experience in the clinical setting, as well as a treasure trove of CEU classes. He will be followed by Rick Gold, our Eastern medicine and bodywork specialist, who will be giving us his thoughts from his extensive experience working as an Eastern medicine doctor and acupuncturist, as well as a massage educator. He'll be followed by Walt Fritz, who is an evidence-based physical therapist specializing in myofascial release. Last but not least, we will wrap up with Meredith Stevens, who is a Pilates physical therapist and movement expert, as well as being a massage therapist and a trainer for Anatomy Trains. As usual, there's going to be a lot of different opinions and perspectives that will be shared over the course of this and upcoming episodes. I want to be clear that I'm not trying to put any one opinion over the other. I believe that my job is to bring experienced people together and ask them good questions. Clearly, we have quite a bit to get to, so let's dive in. I bring you the first panel on depression. All right, and as always, we are going to start with Ruth Werner, who's a massage therapy educator that specializes in pathology for massage therapists. And what she's going to do is she's going to help set up the context for this discussion around the particular condition and kind of lay the groundwork from where all the other conversations can take place. So thank you so much for joining me, Ruth. Oh, it's my pleasure to be here, Haley. So talk to me about depression and working with depression for for body workers. I'm really glad that you have made some space to talk about this topic. Um, and, and one of the reasons I'm glad about it is, is that I think instinctively we can anticipate that welcomed touch has a, you know, a positive impact on mood state. Please be aware that I qualify that with welcomed touch because unwelcome touch doesn't do that, right? Um, so welcomed touch has a positive impact on mood state. And, and we can, you know, we kind of get that instinctively. That's what we want to do. We want to soothe. We want to um, cuddle someone who's, who's in a bad way, right? Um, but, what, but I will back that up by saying that the research that has been done about massage therapy shows much stronger and much more consistent positive results for issues around depression and anxiety than what we see for things like circulation or delayed onset muscle soreness or, you know, recovery from athletic injury. Um, and that's so counterintuitive to what many of us thought. I certainly did not get into the massage therapy profession thinking I was going to be, um, you know, n creating a niche and working with people who, who struggle with depression. But I know people now who do that right, who have decided I'm going to put my focus into working with people who have anxiety or my focus into working with people who have depression. Um, and they create networks and they have great responses. And, and it's a really, really rich um, aspect of the work that we do. So let's talk a little bit about what we understand about this thing. And I have a quote 
that I love to share about what depression is because it captures a lot of it in a very short, short sentence. Um, and I'll tell you where this came, comes from in a second. It's this, this, this definition is depression is a genetic neurochemical disorder. So we have a genetic aspect, a neurochemical, so neurotransmitter changes, a genetic neurochemical disorder requiring a strong environmental trigger whose characteristic manifestation is an inability to appreciate sunsets. Huh. <laughs> Isn't that fabulous? <laughs> yeah, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna do that one more time. A genetic neurochemical disorder requiring a strong environmental trigger, so something goes wrong that sets something off, whose characteristic manifestation is an inability to appreciate sunsets. So this is a quote from one of my very favorite books about stress called Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers by Robert Sapolsky. I'll say that again, people can get that. Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers by Robert Sapolsky. He's a very famous um, uh, expert, neuroscientist and expert on the, the way stress affects human function. He's plus what, super cool. So <laughs> in any case, um, so we have the, here we have this thing. It, there's a genetic component to depression. It runs in families and not just as the way we pick up from our parents how they cope with stressors, but there is a genetic component to people so, so that some people are more vulnerable to aspects of depression than others. There's a neurochemical aspect of it and there's an environmental trigger. And the net result is loss of pleasure, loss of pleasure in anything, loss of pleasure in hobbies, loss of pleasure in relationships, loss of pleasure in sexual activity, loss of pleasure in all the things. There's, there's a word for that. It's called ahedonism, which I had never heard of until I started learning about depression. But if you think of what hedonism is, right, love of pleasure, ahedonism, lack of pleasure, hmm. right? So... This condition is incredibly common. We think it affects about 20% um, of all American women and about 12% of all American men at some point in their lives. And that's, a, that's an estimate of, of who it really affects, not necessarily of who is diagnosed with it, okay? Um, it's highest in people who are between 25 and 45 years old, and it's a very complicated condition. <sighs> It, and it's a hard one to talk about because, you know, so many of us live with various aspects of this. And I certainly have had times in my life where this was a big, a big part of, of what affected my quality of life. There are um, lots of different types of depression. And if you um, really need to spend any time with the diagnostic manual of oh, the DSM, which I can never remember what it stands for, um, then you will learn that there are about 10, 10 different types of depression. Um, almost always when we talk about depression, we're talking about what's called major depressive disorder, which is the situation where, again, a genetic neurochemical change with a major trigger. And so for most people who have this, there's a specific thing that happens. It might not look major to you, but if it feels major to me, then that's all, you know, that really that really matters. And people end up in 
um, a, a relatively sudden onset. By sudden, I mean, you know, somewhere where at one point they're feeling themselves and two weeks to two months later, they can't get out of bed, okay? So a relatively specific sort of onset of symptoms. And those symptoms include a whole bunch of different things. Changes in sleep patterns, which means for some people they just stop sleeping and for other people they feel like they need to sleep all the time. Changes in eating patterns, same thing. They stop eating or they eat all the time. Uh, certain, you know, irritability, guilt, hopelessness. And, and I wanna say a little bit about hopelessness because that's um, a, an easy word to say and a harder word to understand. One of the hardest things about depression um, is that it involves as a key factor a complete loss of any sense of perspective about time. Um, and so people who live with depression forget that there was ever any other thing. They have always felt like this. They will always feel like this. This is it. This is all there is. And you can imagine how hard it is to live in that paradigm, you know, to live in that worldview. One of the hardest things about living with depression and forgetting that there's ever another way to be um, is that it, it becomes really difficult for people to be proactive about seeking out the right kind of help. And the truth is for most cases of major depressive disorder, there's some combination of interactions or, in, or interventions that can be really, really helpful but people have to be invested in making that happen. And if, you live, are you, if you're living a life where it doesn't feel worth investing in, then it's really hard to do that. I get a little frustrated when I see memes of you know, a picture of a beautiful pathway through the woods versus a picture of a pile of pills, you know, saying one of these is the right treatment for depression, right? Because you talk to a person who's living in depression, oh, what you really need is to go out and take a walk. Then you'd, you know, then all, then you'd feel much better. That's what you really need. And you know, if they don't hit you, they will want to hit you, but it's just too much trouble, right? So <laughs> I want to be really clear that there's a lot of interventions that can help with depression, and medication is one of them. So one of the things about depression is it tends to run in cycles. An average depressive cycle lasts about 18 months, okay? Um, where people will go through these biochemical changes that, that contributes to them living in this dark, dark place and eventually left on its own, most people eventually climb out of it just spontaneously. It's the natural history of this disease. Um, but it takes a really long time. And one of the problems that we see is that, remember I said there's a trigger, there's a strong environmental trigger. And what we see for people who are prone to depression is it takes a smaller and smaller trigger every time. And an average untreated person might go through six or eight or 10 depressive cycles in their lifetime. That's 20 or 30 years of wishing you were dead. And it's not okay when there are options that can help us feel better. 
So I want to make really clear that I am not anti-antidepressant. And I, I and people I know have felt like this intervention has been a huge help. It's not the only intervention. Um, but combined with appropriate talk therapy and combined with when we can marshal the resources to, to feel good in our bodies again and to get exercise, um, you know, that those are parts of the pathways out of the dark cave. Now, Haley, I want to ask you, can you think of anything that might help someone feel sort of more invested or more interested in having good feelings in their body? Um, it might happen <laughs> in a massage room. Yeah, it might. It might could happen in a massage room. And, um, and you know, and there are so few things that we can do for ourselves that feel really self-indulgent, but are, that are actually good for us, right? And, and massages is, is, is one of them, and it's a beautiful, beautiful gift. And as I said at the beginning of this discussion, the, the data on massage and mood for, and, and most of this data has been conducted when depression is part of something else, like when depression is part of having a chronic disease. If you have a chronic disease, if you have, if you've been diagnosed with something that's probably you're going to have forever, um, it's very hard to not struggle with bouts of depression because, you know, that cycle of hopelessness can really take over. These people, when we, when we have studied the impact of bodywork and welcomed touch in that kind of context, what we see is mood scores being, you know, very dependably, positively impacted by the work that we bring. We can do a beautiful thing. There's a danger. There's a danger, and this will happen, I bet you, to every single massage therapist who has clients who have depression, is your client will come to you and say, Haley, you are a miracle worker. You are so good at what you do. You are so good that I am going to stop taking my Effexor. Um, and that is incredibly seductive, right? That feels really good because, man, I, am, I must be really good at what I do. <laughs> but here's the danger with that. And I didn't talk about this before, but one of the, real, one of the challenges in, in pharmacological approaches to treating depression, which I will emphasize, is A, an aspect of treatment, not the only one, but one of the difficulties with pharmacological approaches to depression is because of the way these chemicals work in our brain, there's a several week period where, when someone starts a new prescription of getting used to it. Um, and so we don't really know if that prescription is gonna be effective or not for sometimes a couple of months or more. And if there needs to be adjustments or if something needs to be added or, or you know, getting to the right medical out medical uh, intervention can be a long, frustrating uh, 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 process. So for someone to, who's receiving massage to come and say, this is so great, I'm quitting my effects, or it's really, really important for us to say, I'm so glad you're feeling better. Don't do that. <laughs> if you want to do that, you got to talk to your doctor because it took you a long time to feel this good. So please don't change what you're doing with your meds unless you talk about it with your prescribing physician first. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Ruth. Sure. There's tons more to say about this, of course, but I, wanna, I want for massage therapists to feel really empowered about working with clients who have depression and also anxiety. 
um, because our work is really, really impactful in these situations, you know, as long as we're super careful about those boundaries. Thank you again. You bet. You can find out more about Ruth through her website at ruthwerner.com. You can also read her work in A Massage Therapist's Guides to Pathology, a book that she wrote, which is now published by Books of Discovery. All right, now we're going to go ahead and turn to Whitney Lowe, who's an orthopedic massage specialist, to talk about his take on our condition of interest today. Thanks for joining us, Whitney. Uh, great to be here. Thanks for having me. So do you have any approaches to working with clients with depression? Well, you know, this is an interesting one to think about because, you know, you can have clients that have, for example, that have been diagnosed with let's say clinical depression or something like that. And you can also have clients who have um, carpal tunnel syndrome. And because of that, they can't play the guitar any longer. And because of that, they can't do the favorite thing in their life and they're becoming depressed. They're not going to be diagnosed with clinical depression, but they are. Depression is a part of what's going on for them right now. And that very depression can make a pain problem worse. We know that that can have a, a significant factor in making some things worse. So this is a really um, a sticky one because there's, a, there's certainly a, a, a dividing line or a line that sometimes is not really clear for massage therapists about the role that we play because we're not trained as um, psychologists or counselors. Um, and depression often you know, has a very significant component to that that either requires that or, you know, benefits significantly from some type of uh, counseling process. But we also have to recognize that the um, things that we say to somebody or the, the way that we engage with them in the midst of any session can have some really significant impact on some of those kinds of factors. So um, I always like to encourage massage therapists to make sure you very carefully steer clear of giving people, um, you know, advice or recommendations that's considered, um, you know, here's what you should be doing for your problem kind of thing, because that really can be sort of crossing over the line of us giving them instructions or things that really could be considered more counseling. It, it you know, we should never underemphasize at all the power of just listening and just being there for people. And that really is, I think, the best and most important strategy for what we're doing is we're dealing with clients who have depression is really just be there and listen with people. Don't feel like you have to fix or change something with them because that's really outside your wheelhouse. But look at this various facet of what we're doing with massage and how can we just kind of be there in a supportive, compassionate, engaging atmosphere with an individual and just help them by being there for them because maybe somebody else isn't there for them in, in their life that's causing this kind of problem for them. And in terms of the effects that effleurage have in terms of relaxation and, and soothing the, the nervous system, uh, does that have any effect in, 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 on people's depression? I think it's huge. Um, and this, is, this goes back to being hardwired into the neurological system from the time that we were infants. You know, when you're a baby and you're crying and something's wrong, what does your parent do? Hopefully soothes you, eases you, nice, gentle stroke and things. Hey, it's okay, sweetie, it's okay, whatever. That sort of process of that soothing, uh, easing touch um, is early, early implantation into the nervous system that tells us this is what helps make things better. So 
it is tremendously powerful. Um, and this is one place where the quality of just basic massage touch makes a big difference. So you can do effleurage on somebody which feels like just rubbing their skin. And you can do effleurage which feels like a very caring and compassionate touch. So the way in which you contact a person and the quality of that touch is a big factor in how effective it's going to be in dealing with something like this. Because you can make uh, a, an effleurage technique feel really uh, uncomfortable and just bad if it's not if it's done abruptly or erratically or with without that kind of compassionate engagement behind it. And do you have any anecdotal stories about working with uh, clients with depression? Um, nothing that immediately comes to mind. And it kind of goes back to what I was saying to you earlier, which is that a lot of times, you know, since I'm doing mostly things in sort of the orthopedic realm, you know, I don't tend to see as many of uh, those kinds of things. But what I deal with a lot more frequently is people whose pain problem has a very significant component of depression to it because, for example, they're no longer able to do the things that they were doing. So what really is most beneficial in those instances is celebrating the successes that we do have, you know, the things that make it, uh, hey, look, you couldn't do this last year and now you can do it. You know, that's, that's great. You know, so we're, we're making some really good headway in those places. So focusing the attention on where the good successes are and the good things that are happening is the most effective way that I think that we can do that in dealing with these kinds of problems. All right. Thank you, Whitney. Okay, you bet. You can find out more about Whitney and the work that he's doing at the Academy of Clinical Massage. That's www.academyofclinicalmassage.com, where you can learn about this condition and many others. And now we're bringing in Rick Gold, who's our Eastern Massage and Chinese Medicine Specialist, to talk with us. Thanks for joining us, Rick. My pleasure, Haley. I look forward to it. So talk to me about depression. Okay, well... <laughs> Depression is many things, and it, it, it manifests in a variety of ways. Um, it is recorded in Chinese medicine. Uh, it wasn't labeled depression as we know it per se, um, but it's it's definitely a wide wide ranging phenomenon affecting of many 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 people. Um, one thing ancient Chinese medicine teaches us about what we call notice depression is a lot of times it's repressed anger. Anger and depression are two sides of a, of a similar coin. It all comes back to the vitality of the liver of the person. And um, a way of, because oftentimes with depression, there's, there's fatigue associated with it. And an image is that um, with depression is there, if you think of it metaphorically, there's a kernel of anger that, that is brewing in someone. And rather, for whatever reasons, whether it's sociological or in the family or spiritual, whatever reasons people aren't able to express anger, what we do is we create all these energetic and strata and emotional strategies to wall off, wall off the anger. And so what we've done is we've used our vitality, which we ideally would be manifesting in action out in the world. We use that vitality to hold in the anger. So now we have fatigue and we have um, emotional uh, despondency. And so to get at the root. Now, this is often handled more by psychotherapists. Um, there are, are people that do emotional release in the body work field um, that aren't necessarily psychotherapists or li licensed therapists. Um, but the most important thing, I think, is to, if possible, 
to get at the root cause of depression. Depression is not the cause of depression. There's an underlying cause. And sometimes it's deficiency, sometimes it's repressed anger, sometimes it's, it's, it's certainly biochemical. Now, we see in the West, one of the most, uh, and it's oftentimes beneficial, uh, people see a change in behavior or the, the selective serotonin uptake inhibiting drugs. Now, we know you can't just take serotonin because the body can't assimilate serotonin. You don't package serotonin. You know, you can take precursors like a tryptophan uh, or get it in Turkey, um, but that's uh, not beneficial especially. But we have found that the, um, we can enhance serotonin production in the body. Now, I think there's a lot of confusion if we stop 10 people on the street and ask them about, about if they know anything about serotonin and depression, and ask, where is serotonin produced in the body? I don't think the majority of people would say that 90 plus percent is produced in nerve endings in the gut. That's where serotonin is produced. And this is where this little brain or mind body or brain, the secondary brains of the body, all this theory is coming from, and it's accurate because serotonin is produced in the gut. And so from an Asian bodywork perspective, uh, freeing up the gut, helping move the liver chi and the liver blood and getting the nerve endings of the abdomen into a much more vital state is going to be very beneficial for helping lift the cloud of depression for many people because there's, there's transitory depression and there's deeply seated chronic long-term depression. Uh, I think working the gut can be beneficial for both, but um, if someone's just you know, they've had, a mo they've had a breakup or a financial setback. They go to their doctor, they say, I'm depressed. Here, take Prozac, take Wellbutrin. That's not solving a, that's not solving a problem. It's, it's just, uh, you know, like a, a feel-good strategy. So from a body work point of view, uh, especially in the Asian body work, from both Thai body work and Shiatsu body work training that I've had in Thailand and Japan, we have many wonderful deep abdominal techniques that we do. Um, and, um, and I'm not adverse to creating just an edge of pain when I go deep into someone's abdomen because we hold so much of our history, uh, uh, especially our traumatic history in our gut. And so um, now to uh, help uh, ameliorate some of the discomfort of abdominal work, I often, before I get to the abdomen, We'll put a hot poultice, again, of castor oil on the abdomen, or just a hot hydroculator pack, something to increase blood flow, get the energy warmed up and moving. And while we do that, we can do distal points. Most of what we call depression is going to involve the energy of the liver being disharmonious. So the points, uh, liver three, uh, gallbladder 40, gallbladder 34, uh, liver eight, sometimes liver nine. These points are very beneficial. The point triple warmer, also known as Sanjao five on the wrist. On the back, we can use urinary bladder 18 and 19, especially sometimes 20 would, would be used. Um, we do know that when we treat points in the ear, especially a point called Shen Men, which doesn't have a correlation to Western physiology, it means spirit or heaven gate. Um, we actually see endorphin production in the brain go up. That's a measurable phenomena using Western technology. So usually if the brain is flooded with endorphins, you're in a state of uh, mini ecstasy or deep ecstasy. 
And so the concept of depression, you just, you sort of rise above it. And that, that sometimes it might be temporary, but at least you can take a step back and view it as an observer and, go and, and have perspective. Why am I so depressed? Why am I so angry? Why aren't they, you know, and really start to have a, a dialogue within yourself or a dialogue with your therapist or dialogue uh, with your loved ones. So uh, East Asian body work has a lot to offer for transitory depression, low level depression. Um, we're not really dealing with agitated depression. That's usually a, a kidney and a liver disharmony in Chinese medical theory. Um, that's something to think about. Um, a lot of times excessive worry People are very worried about things, and that gets translated into depression in Western culture. But worry is much more of an earth, a spleen, pancreas uh, phenomena. But regardless of the underlying thing, liberating an abdomen is going to be one of the most effective ways of treating depression. Is there a specific set of techniques you use when you say liberating the, the abdomen? And is there yeah, there are definitely the uh, uh, Shiatsu, you're going to see more just direct thumb pressure on points. Thai massage, we do use, we use palm circles. We do deep palm compressions. Uh, we do elbows. Um, uh, there's a monastery I visited north of Bangkok where they actually, the client's lying down, the practitioner's standing. They actually have parallel bars along the table, and they're using their heels and their toes because you can really go deep into an abdomen with your heel. And uh, you get right, you, you work with the breath, you give permission to emote, and then you start working very, very deeply. And um, things, there is a shift. There's usually a measurable and perceived shift that occurs. All right. Thank you, Rick. Certainly. Now, that was Rick Gold. You can learn more about any of the Eastern medicine points he was talking about with a simple Google search. And Rick also develops music for meditation. And you can learn more about that music at www.metamindfulnessmusic.com. And his work there is to help facilitate meditation and mindfulness. So now I'm going to bring in Walt Fritz, who will give us his thoughts from the perspective of a physical therapist who specializes in evidence-informed myofascial release. Welcome, Walt. Thanks for having me, Haley. So tell me your thoughts on working with people who are suffering from depression. So... Yeah, certainly a, a, a good percentage of the population in the United States, or wherever your listeners are listening from, um, suffer from depressing depression. Um, I, I would really want to draw a line between um, our affective touch versus the effects of our touch. Meaning, I don't know whether there's a whole lot of credible evidence out there to say that um, we can affect something, right? The effect of our touch that that impacts or touches on something in the body that from a physiological perspective affects that depression or lessens it. Um, affective touch with an A, right? Whether it's massage or manual therapy, touch and manual therapies applied in, in a safe, um, quiet, nurturing perspective can certainly um, help a person's symptoms and make them feel better. I mean, that's what we do for a living. I would draw the line with saying that um, manual therapy and or massage has a direct effect on the diagnostic um, category of depression. And do you find that there's uh, a way in which, as a practitioner, you have to tread more carefully around working with 
patients that, that have depression, either in the words that you use to describe either their symptoms or the, con- or the conditions they're working with? Um, no, I, I, no, I would, I would hope not. I, I, I don't think I would guard my, my phrasing or wording at all to, uh, with that person than anyone else. I like to think that um, I use an approach both of touch and of language that um, that is gentle enough that anybody um, can benefit from it and nobody would be provoked or triggered by it. All right. Thank you, Walt. Yeah. So that was Walt Fritz. And if you want to learn more about Walt and his approach or his seminars, you can find more at waltfritz.com. So now I'm going to bring in Meredith Stevens, who will give us her thoughts from the perspective of a physical therapist, structural integrator, and Pilates expert. So welcome, Meredith. Thanks for having me, Haley. So let's talk about depression. Yeah. um, So obviously, people don't come in to see me because they're depressed. But um, the reality is, what, 15 to 20 percent of Americans can suffer from depression at any point in time, women more than men. Um, And I, I... strongly suspect that there's there's a lot more than that but because of the stigma associated with depression that a lot of people don't report it um, oftentimes i'm working with um, depression as a result of some other issue that the person has come in with perhaps they have an injury that has caused them to be able to stop participating in life the way they used to participate um, and they don't see um, that it's going to get better, that, that um, maybe they have something like fibromyalgia that they're working with and the associated depression with that. Um, you, there's a lot of changes that happen with depression, a lot of different things in the neurotransmitters. So we have a decrease in serotonin, in dopamine, in norepinephrine. So um, we've seen there is good research out there that massage just straight massage can actually help with depression, can help with these neurotransmitters, can help with a parasympathetic response. Um, So um, it can be a nice adjunct treatment. Uh, Other things that I do with people, one is sleep. Are you sleeping? Can we get you to get good sleep and good quality sleep? Matthew Walker wrote a a fantastic book. He's a PhD sleep researcher who wrote a fantastic book called Why We Sleep. And he really goes into how important getting deep sleep and getting REM sleep is to your health and well-being, um, into the function of your brain. Um, So um, I have really become a big advocate for sleep for everybody I work with. Um, Exercise. Exercise has been shown to really help ameliorate the symptoms of depression. So getting somebody moving, um, again, those same neurotransmitters, that serotonin, that dopamine, that norepinephrine, we are raising those levels. We're actually also raising this um, brain-derived neurotrophic growth factor, BDNF, because that's a mouthful, um, but it helps with neuronal growth and differentiation, things that are, are suffering when people have depression. Um, so getting people moving, 
um, getting them doing anything that they enjoy moving. You know, oftentimes people say, well, what's the best thing I can do for movement? The best thing is the thing that you will do. You know, there's research out there that might say, oh, well, doing a combination of resistance and, and, and cardiovascular is good and doing it this many times, getting somebody moving on a regular basis is a great place to start. Um, getting them breathing. Once again, I go back to breathing um, because uh, having breath patterns get altered in depression and can contribute to stress and anxiety as well. So sleep and a regular exercise or movement program and breathing are so key when I'm working with somebody and it doesn't matter what else I'm working with, but those things are also going to get addressed with each person that I work with. And do you have a, a memorable experience in working with a client who, who had depression? Um, yeah, I'm, I'm currently working with somebody right now. And, uh, one of the things that, um, I, we had a conversation, she had, had shared with me that she was getting, she had been becoming more and more depressed and decided to go on to, um, an antidepressant, um, had developed a very sedentary lifestyle over, you know, used to be a regular exerciser and had become very sedentary, has arthritis, you know, sort of an end stage arthritis in her knee. So it was impacting her ability to move. Um, and we talked and we, you know, we decided, well, why don't we, why don't you start coming back to Pilates? You know, she comes to my osteoporosis class. So now I get a social interaction. So she's interacting with a bunch of other people who may have some of the same things going on. Um, getting that social support. He's coming in and we're working one-on-one -on, -one on our on the Pilates equipment. She's seeing that, hey, I can do things. I am getting stronger. This was It was easier this week than it was last week. So instead of having this sense of everything is going downhill, we're starting to get a sense of uh, autonomy. I can do this. I, I can, I'm getting better. And I have this under my control. So that combination of things is um, really starting to turn things around. Um, and I'm very grateful for that. Thank you so much, Meredith. Mm -hmm. So that was Meredith Stevens. And if you want to learn more about her work, you can check out her website at www.bodyworksds.com. And she teaches Anatomy Trains workshops, which you can find out at the Anatomy Trains website. Well, that's a wrap for this episode. A big thank you to all of my experienced and esteemed panelists. I continue to be honored that they let me poke and prod their minds on these subjects. It wouldn't be possible without them. Please do rate us on iTunes or through whichever podcast app that you listen to us. And feel free to visit us on Facebook and suggest new topics for me to cover in future episodes. Until then, be well.